0: Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands Podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity, and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands.
1: Eric Clark is the Portfolio Manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at Acuvest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and
0: podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Acuvest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational
1: purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or Acuvest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Hey everybody, this is Eric Clark from Mega Brands and uh, I'm super excited today to talk energy. Uh, it's Wednesday, uh, August 24th, about uh, about 10:30 pacific time and i'm here with paul sankey from sankey research uh he's in brooklyn and we're going to talk about everything revolving around energy geopolitics probably uh where the energy markets might be headed um i'm not sure if you can talk specific names but we can we can obviously just talk about nat gas and and oil in general and you know all the all the geopolitics surrounding the energy business. The, the, I think the big issue is that most people, including myself up until recently have not been really that exposed to the energy sector. I mean, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the energy is like 4% of the S and P and it was a heck of a lot higher, obviously at the peak. So that tells you that the average portfolio probably has very little exposure to energy and, and commodities. At a time when inflation is high and might be sticky high for a while, making it a pretty interesting thing to consider for a portfolio. But you know, this is certainly outside of my realm of expertise. I'm the consumer guy talking about consumer spending and the brands that matter in each one of those spending categories. So it's better to get an expert on the line to talk about all things, you know, energy. So I, I appreciate your time <laughs> and you know, looking forward to the chat.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the numbers on the, uh, on the S&P. Obviously, I'm pretty familiar with that in terms of a long road on Wall Street. So I came here to Wall Street from Europe in 2004. And uh, the reason I'm talking from Brooklyn, I'm actually in Brooklyn Heights, which was the first suburb in the world. It was the first city that, which fed another city that Brooklyn Heights was developed to, um, with the ferry in mind in the 1850s or so. They started building houses here for people to work on wall street wall street's actually a mile away from me but you've got to cross the river before the days of the brooklyn bridge uh actually brooklyn was a separate city and that's what makes this technically the first suburb it's a very long way of saying i'm a mile from wall street right now but you're right the current uh weight in the uh, s&p 500 is about four percent for oil um a bit more than that actually but not a lot and what a lot of people don't know because they think back to the 2008 peak oil price which was just about $150 a barrel uh, we're at about 90 95 right now but back in 0- 08 we hit what was basically the all time high for oil at that time oils hit uh, about 14 or 15% of the S&P uh, depending on what you do with MLPs and things and actually that that had been a run from 2004 uh, we'd had a tough time in oil post 9-11. From 2004 onwards, China started using enormous amounts of incremental oil, and that drove the oil price to that 150 peak. So actually from that low was about 4% of the S&P when I first came to, the, to the Wall Street. What interested me was that the previous all-time high, which doesn't appear in a lot of data series, because long data series are a bit tricky on things like Bloomberg, uh, the previous all-time high and the all-time high of oil in the S&P was actually 32 2%, believe it or not, 32% of the oil. And that was in about 79, 80, which was, you know, obviously the first major oil shock, or really actually the second major oil shock, the first being in 73. Um, and I had I had taken this to heart because what I noticed is further to what you're looking at is the consumer in what was then a super oil consumption-led story in the US, which is to say you weren't producing much oil and gas domestically anymore. And it was declining every year back then um, with very intense gasoline use and oil use in general, was that if you look at oil in GDP, it correlates to oil in the S&P 500. So basically, as people spend more money on oil, which is how you measure it, essentially, it's become more complicated because now we produce a lot of oil and gas. But back then, all you needed to look at was U.S. oil demand times the oil price divided by U.S. real GDP. And you had a calculation for oil oil share of gdp and if you look back over time obviously what happened in the late 70s was the price spiked people were driving big cars and couldn't immediately change their car they couldn't immediately change their boiler if they were burning oil and so people just spent a ton more on energy and that's when you got the all-time peak of oil in the s&p today you know arguably we're looking at the same picture so sorry i've been going on a bit there but that's the background
0: no that's good i mean i i mean This is a bit of a this is I love a good, you know, conspiracy theory and everything. But when I look at the the geopolitics and how much money was going into ESG and how little investment was going into the energy patch, you know, these and these are smart people that are making these investments and deciding where to put the money. They clearly knew a lack of investment in an important sector was eventually going to drive prices higher. But I mean, am I missing something? It just seems like with the world turning towards sustainable energy, you know, as fast as it can, which is going to be a very slow moving train and investment dollars going to other places, how can we avoid another oil shock? I mean, am I missing something or is that just kind of inevitable and, and is there an inevitability of, of big price swings and higher volatility, because a lot of these countries that most of their GDP come from oil revenues have a vested interest in keeping oil prices high, not so high that it's going to cut demand, but certainly they want, they want as much as they can if the world's turning away from what they do.
1: Well, I mean, that's certainly what the Saudi oil minister just said, right? I mean, they look at their budget at $100 a barrel, and they don't see demand getting created by any means. And and you know, they say basically, more or less, what he said, the Saudi oil minister just this week is we're going to we're going to defend a $100 oil, which is we're talking Brent here. So you take a few dollars off of the U.S. prices, but not much. Um, I think you know. <laughs> I worked for one of the famous analysts and one of the famous research shops, uh, his own shop, uh, Ed Wolf, was a top transport analyst. And um, I joined Wolf Research when it was very small. Now it's a very big, it's probably the biggest independent research house on Wall Street. And uh, Wolf was a top transport analyst. So I said he had a framed letter from Warren Buffett on his wall, congratulating him on some call he made about, as you know, Warren Buffett has bought a lot of railroad in his time. But anyway, at some point working for Ed, uh, he said to me the immortal question to his one of his top analysts, uh, "How can you be so wrong on oil?" <laughs> <laughs> and my first answer was a classic Wall Street answer: "If you're on, you know, thinking on your feet, which is Ed, what you don't realize is I'm less wrong." <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought about it and I said, "Look, Ed, you, you cover trains and transports in the U.S. You know, at, at any point that you were covering U.S. Tra- rails, did the Iranians come in the middle of the night and move all the train tracks?" Because, you know, how wrong can you be on a U.S. train transport, you know, forecast? Whereas what happens with us is obviously what I'm referring to is that in the middle of the night, Putin, who, you know, you've got three major oil producers in the world, right? Saudi, U.S., thankfully, and Russia. And one of them goes la-la, you know, I mean, like literally land war in Europe. I mean, you know, what, I, was meant to, I was meant to predict that. Well, people kind of were, especially regarding Germany. Right. So if you look at the UK, for example, which is very and, and, you know, what you mustn't forget is that the in Europe, there is a very, very strong uh, agenda towards the environmental change. They're prepared to pay. It's the, really the question is, are you prepared to pay more money to be more environmentally friendly? And the answer in Europe is resoundingly yes. You know, and, and the other thing that really strikes me going back to the UK is, by the way, how much more liberal is probably the word you would use. the the europe is in general than the u.s you know there's much more concern about social safety nets about you know all the aspects of all the positive aspects of being a liberal much more you know i was just noting when boris johnson was thrown out of power recently how relatively liberal he is and how relatively right-wing the u.s is i mean i think you know you you tend to lose perspective quite frankly a bit in the u.s and the agenda here is very right-wing even from the democrats arguably although you know I, i i won't get too bogged down in sort of tax and spend and stuff which you know, I'm I'm very opposed to, I have to say. I'm I'm a, I'm a social liberal and a fiscal conservative is the old man. But anyway, yeah, in the, if you look at the UK, they, they've developed a huge amount of wind. Uh, incredibly, actually, solar. UK is the windiest place in Europe, but they actually also have solar, which obviously is a bit of a standing joke in the UK, even though now it's, you know, climate's change. And then they have multiple sources of gas imports. They have their own production of oil and gas, and everyone drives small cars, you know, and so they've kind of done everything... Right. And if you read the IEA report on the UK, they're like, these guys are about as good as you get. But what the Germans did, which was arguably very corrupt and, you know, didn't really admit it at the time. But if you look at where Vladimir Putin got his start, it was in Dresden, Germany, right? He's highly, highly connected to the Germans. And if you look at who was in charge of Gazprom on the board in Germany, it was Schroeder, the former chancellor. So these guys, if you want a conspiracy theory, these guys have all been, you know, have you seen their yachts? And you know they make they make Nancy Pelosi look like she's got no money. So um, the fact of the matter is, was that uh, the 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 egregious the egregious policy error was basically Germany. Because if you look at France, it's in theory seventy five percent nuclear power. If you look at Spain and Portugal, they don't care about Germany. One of the funny things about it's not even funny. Nothing's funny about what's going on there. But one of the ironies of what's going on there is, if you look at Italy, Greece. Spain, Portugal in the financial global financial crisis, the Germans were like, you made this problem for you, you sorted out and, you know, basically told them to go and sling their hook. And now the Germans are like, ah, you know, can we have some gas, please? After, you know, after, we, you know, my friend uh, Boris's yacht has been, you know, uh, commandeered in in some italian luxury port or whatever these guys were all doing together but it was pretty filthy so yeah the biggest single error was obviously that for the rest of it um it's there is some basic well-known stuff about interruptibility you can't be too critical of europe when you look at california obviously and the first really bad energy policy i really was amazed at how idiotic it was was california and the most idiotic of all which both California kind of, and certainly Germany are guilty of, is simultaneously shutting nuclear. Because it's like, you're just, you, you, what? It's, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? It's like, if you want less emissions, there's only one mega source of energy, really, and if you want zero emissions effectively, and it's nuclear, how on earth do you think you're going to shut nuclear and lose your baseload power, and then be dependent on something which everyone You know, with any brain knows that it's not sunny at night. And, you know, the the wind tends to be correlated geographically and sustained, which is to say you get three windy days all across California or wherever. And then you get four days with no wind all across California. Right. So any, any, any intermediate plan on that one. (laughs) And that's where it came to the duck curve, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where California demand peaks right when the renewables fall off. Yeah. But yeah, so was there a conspiracy of idiocy? Somewhat, um, but there are other places that have more or less got it right. I can't remember the question, I'm sorry.
0: No, that's okay. I I mean, so I'd love to know this, what your, what your views are here. So I'm a believer that if you are a leader in whatever industry you're in, and that industry is moving away from what you do into something else usually the leaders of one industry they just pivot eventually and become the leaders of the new gen of whatever industry that is so i mean do you see the the our traditional energy companies you know I, i'm sure they're tiptoeing a little bit into the next gen of energy because i mean exxon chevron all those guys want to be the leaders of tomorrow's energy too and i know that they have they have pivoted to some degree while still maintaining the current business i mean do you see a world where where these the energy companies get into wind or solar or you know uh, electricity or nuclear or or owning some materials that drive this i mean it seems like if that's where the world is headed then you would think the leaders of energy would want to be in that world eventually or do they just stay Uh, in the lane i mean i'm
1: not to be honest i'm not sure i agree with your premise i mean disruption of any industry i i don't know and i've actually looked for examples where disruptive companies um you know actually lead the next change so one of the classic examples you know kind of a business study classic is kodak right where they actually invented, I think they more or less invented the digital camera, and then tried to kill it, and then it essentially died. And in fact, one of the stocks we like, Lycy Lycycle, which recycles batteries, it will recycle batteries here in North America. They're repurposing a Kodak chemical facility in Rochester, New York, with all the utilities and you know things that you need for a big film processing, biggest film processing, not processing but uh, film film manufacturing site in the world. They're now repurposing that to recycle batteries. Now, Kodak definitely screwed up because they had the technology in their hands and they deliberately didn't pursue it. But anyway, let's not get bogged down in that. I think the the difference if for the case of uh, Exxon and Chevron, whether or not they want to lead the um, the next generation is is twofold. The first is obviously that that it's not oil and gas. <laughs> And so they have to go into a new area, which is new expertise. And secondly, that's about electricity, essentially, and how you generate electricity. So it's, again, not quite at all the same thing as energy, but it is more in the wheelhouse of utilities. And then thirdly, which is a more sophisticated point, if I dare say it, there's a question of cost of capital, which is to say for an emerging technology business, the market will give you a very low cost of capital for a pure play. This is a huge issue that we had to pound into the, literally, I had to pound into the, the CEO of Exxon and all of them was, you know, your cost of capital is probably 20 to 25. Don't look at CAPM, the classic model. That's not how the market looks at your stock. The market looks at your stock as a declining, dead, dying industry, which has got ESG problems and is you know, arguably tobacco, you know, in terms of how many people it's killing. You know, don't, don't misunderstand how right. much people hate your industry. Your cost of capital has got to be 25%. And what you see today is the free cash flow of the oil companies is around 20 to 25%. So it underlines the idea that the market requires that kind of cost of capital before it wants to buy these things. If you tell me, hey, I've got a better solar panel, let's say it's Sunrun in California, market will almost give you money without any regard that's you know the most classic example being tesla right where people see a genius where people see a a next generation where people see a demonstrable business model Tesla arguably has, has a zero cost of capital right i mean it literally has infinite stock value that's why people shorting tesla are probably making a serious mistake until something goes wrong with elon and that's why when elon smokes dope on a podcast or does anything, you know, like Twitter or whatever, that's where the stock, you know, might change value by twenty billion, thirty, whatever billion dollars, because essentially the market's changing the cost of capital of Tesla according to how much it needs Tesla to return, you know, with or without Elon in order to own it long term. That's all a bit convoluted. So we had to persuade the oils and particularly the European oils, and I've been very negative about those names, that if you think BP is ever gonna be considered a low-cost of capital renewables company, you're out of your mind. And if you think that by making the logo green, yeah, I was using, gonna say
0: the logo's green, come on.
1: And and using dumbass fonts, which are like, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but they don't use capitalization and I'm a real stickler for punctuation. It just drives me nuts, you know. Um so it's like no you 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 don't mix these business models you know and if you look at a very good company total out of france very good ceo worth listening to stock has been appalling for 3 years and normally you know a stock that's appalling for one has a shot at year 2 i don't know i've seen a stock underperform so consistently not certainly not one that's a very good company that makes very good good uh, profits and knows what it's doing and is transitioning well because what they're doing is doing all the stuff of going after the customer pursuing solar you know they're ticking all the boxes they're a bunch of french guys they know engineering market won't touch it with a barge ball in fact today i'm sure literally uh, you know even even after three years of performance i'm still sure so the, i think the big thing that people miss in all these things is going to be cost of capital actually as for the one we could talk about for hours is is there an example of a business that successfully reinvented itself into the next generation of technology you could probably say apple i guess but they invented it they invented the next generation right. themselves
0: yeah i mean so you don't see a you don't you kind of see these guys staying in their lane if if theres MA, maybe making MA in their lane still and just just being you know keeping supply fairly tight and generating a ton of cash flow and buying back a bunch of stock and you know when what happens in 30 years i mean maybe it's maybe it'll take a lot longer than 30 years to w- when this kind of crossover happens if it happens we hope it all happens there's a lot at stake
1: right. well i mean i'm in the you know it's, i'm going to sound like a horrible ass saying this but i'm in the position where i tell them what to do and my clients are very very big right. <laughs> they run trillions of dollars and what i tell them to do is exactly what you just said and so what's the value of the equity the value of the equity is how much you return right the market's never going to pay you as a tesla forget about it go back to basic benjamin graham original thesis you know not the greater fool not the idea that your idea is worth more to somebody else but actually just the actual return on capital and return of capital and what you see today, obviously, if a stock's got a 25% free cash flow yield and the management are not idiots, which is to say they actually just return the money to shareholders, I buy $100 worth of Exxon today, it's actually probably got more like a 15% free cash flow. But if we talk about, let's say, a Diamondback or a smaller company might have a 20%, 25% free, uh, free cash flow yield, depending on obviously what oil price you use, but let's just use 100, then they definitely do. If I buy $100 today and he returns me as much as he says he will, I have a free option on oil in year four because he's returned all my capital. So, you know, what do you want? You want a free oil company in year four? Now, nah, the one major problem, obviously, is we could have a global mega recession and, you know, they start raising debt again, but they've, got, well, they've all got strong balance sheets now. So it's not as if these things the zeros are zeros at the first sign of trouble. And by the way, they didn't go to zero, not the ones that are left during COVID, which, you know, if you designed a worst case scenario for oil companies and particularly refining companies, that was it, right? So the bankruptcy risk is low and then it just becomes a question of, I don't expect you to reinvent the wheel or, or, or rather reinvent the company to chase the new technology. Just do what you're doing and give me the money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. And <laughs> let's face it, there's a there's a big, there's big demand for the dividend factor, the dividend growth factor. So, you know, for around the world aging society need of income, bonds don't give you a ton of income. I mean, do you see these energy stocks, you know, particularly the the bigger ones I guess, because they tend to be they seem to be a lot more stable and predictable these days from an earnings perspective. I mean, do you see those as being just kind of good steady eddy earners, good cash flow generators, good dividend payers to you know, without incredible, I mean, you might have a lot of volatility in the commodity that they, that they operate in, but from a business perspective, is there just not a ton of volatility quarter to quarter in these things these days?
1: Um, Not, not in the strategy, you know, not in the execution. So they're much better companies. The industry also consolidated, right? So there's, right. so there's less of them uh, in, in the commodity. You know, no, dude, as I said, you know, this thing, this thing, it might be at minus 20 tomorrow for all I know. I mean, it, it is that crazy covering oil and and I've covered it for 30 years. But having said that, you know, again, with the balance sheets being strong, yes. So you've essentially got better balance sheets, better managements with better strategies that are ultimately therefore better, man- um, better uh, prepared, if you want, for the volatility. And the market's definitely not paying for the upside potential volatility, right? The market basically is discounting them as there's only downside from here. Um, Whereas, you know, I think there's every reason to believe that the oil age is not going away within the next decade. Everything's going wrong with the EV uh, transition in terms of costs of EVs, you know, ability to source the raw materials. Actually, you know, we were all interested in, on the oil side by Californians. The study that showed that twenty percent of EV owners were now regressing back to ICES. Nobody models a regression. Nobody, nobody models that a lot of the people that own them are actually going to back and go back to, to gas cars. So all the EV models are way too high. I think the charging business can be the total disaster. The list goes on. Interesting. But the point the, the point is that assuming the oil age i only need the oil age to last another five years and if i'm long here i'm in the money
0: okay i mean so what you know i i, I was that was that your and it, and by the
1: way it might last 50 i mean i had the cfo of a major oil company the other day saying what do you think's got a bigger terminal value zoom which you and i were only just discussing right zoom what you know what do you think's got a bigger terminal value zoom or exxon and of course my facetious reply was it depends on the fed and the reason that would be the case, obviously, is because you have to decide what you think the cost of capital is going to be and what the Fed's going to do with all of that. But ultimately, in terms of assets, Zoom has a zero terminal value and Exxon has an enormous terminal value. One of the things I was also going to mention, by the way, is there's a lot of other things that are undervalued in the U.S. energy, for example, pipelines, refineries, stuff that you could, you could, you know, the other way of looking at it is you're never going to build another one of these things because no one will let you. The lawyers won't let you. So they won't let us build the
0: refineries. They won't let us build the, uh, the nuclear plants. You know, everybody has the four-year period. So they figure, you know, I'll just keep it at bay until someone else has to make the hard decision. And so somebody's got to make the hard decision. <laughs> Otherwise, we never get to where we need to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's particularly the lawyers, you know, so you, it, it takes relatively few people to decide that they're correct in terms of how people should live their lives and then use lawyers to oppose everything. And that's going to be an interesting political question. The other big issue basically is I've always said that the only barrier of entry to being an oil analyst or energy analyst is units. You know, people just don't really know how much energy we use, the makeup of the energy. Now, people are getting a lot better at this, I have to say. But, you know, for 20 years, people were like, we shouldn't use oil, we should just use solar. Now people understand that, you know, solar has, well, let's start with the very beginning. 75% 75% of the world's polysilicon comes from basically forced labor in China. And We're talking Uyghur Muslims here. You know, we're not talking like you know general China, which is, which is pretty much forced labor. But actual Uyghur, that is also you know made using 75% coal-fired power, right? And then we ship it in at high security risk because it's made in China, and they're kind of upset with us. And then we make solar panels that actually have a decline rate you know, so the solar panel doesn't stay stable in terms of its performance, it's going to, it's going to get weaker over time. And then you subsidize people to do that. And it's still not great economics, right. And, you know, just to me, it's like, okay, fine, get into solar and maybe build them in the US. Okay, let's build them in the US. That's what it says in the IRA, the new bill. Immediately, lawyers will oppose you building a plant, essentially, it's extremely difficult, you know, to to start making polysilicon in the US, believe me, because all the stuff that China does that we're You don't want to build a policy plant there, believe me. So there's that, you know, it's it's a major issue in terms of just the energy density alone and whether or not the alternative is better. There's a lot of literature as to whether an, a, an EV, an electric vehicle, is really better for the environment on a cradle-to-grave basis, that is to say, from the, all the way back to the lithium and the copper in, in Chile, Chile, as you say here, um, you know, right the way through to the fact it's much heavier. Right. It destroys the road more. You know, once you put all that stuff together, it's kind of a toss up. And by the way, it costs like $30,000 more when you really look at it. So it's, it's, it is a very difficult question. And I, the biggest frustration for me and what reason I do podcasts, for example, is to try and inform people because I just see people talking absolute nonsense. You know, it's just like patent garbage about energy. And <laughs> you're like, you just don't even get it. Last night I was on CNBC. I was saying, you know, you realize we use 100 million barrels day of oil globally. It's 1,250 barrels a second, okay? Think how big, of, you know how big a barrel is? You know how big a barrel is, right? Everybody knows how big a barrel is. And then you start thinking about the scale of the industry. And it's like, how many panels, you, you know, how many solar panels do you think? It, the line used to be, it's probably got better now, but it used to be you could cover the whole of Manhattan in solar panels. And at peak sunlight on the peak day, you would get one gas station worth of energy.
0: <laughs> that puts it in perspective. <laughs> right. So I mean so based on that I mean if if energy is so important and it's really underowned and it's only roughly let's call it 4% of the index I mean given the kind of environment that you see for the next let's call it 7 years because we were just talking I mean what percentage of the of the of the market should energy be given you know, which which would imply if it's higher, it would imply that energy stocks need to go to go higher or certainly the relative performance of energy stocks relative to to everything else.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote a note. I mean, I, I don't know if your readers know, but I'm actually an independent research analyst. So, my you know, I, I publish very regularly. I mean, a lot uh, it's kind of the model. To They always say the, the quicker you write, the, the, the faster you write in terms of you know speed of reaction, the less you have to write. Um, But I did a note on this. So as I mentioned, when I first came to Wall Street, I'd said that oil and GDP correlates to oil in the S&P 500. And um, at the lows, which was 2% that we didn't mention, oil was only 2% of the S&P in COVID. I think it even dipped to 1.9% actually at the very, very low. Uh, We had said you should be 5% of the S&P 500. And then we went back to... We got to 4.5%, and I did the dreaded Wall Street sell-side victory lap, and I'm like, ah, it should be 10% of the S&P 500. Um, and if you look at what people are spending on energy, for example, in the UK, the forecast is that you were spending for the average uh, Brit. And by the way, these, these sums kind of work for the US as well. Um, the average Brit was spending about 4% of their income uh, on, uh, on energy just for their household. And, um, and that's forecast to get about 16% uh, over the next year, which is going to be a huge problem for poor people, because what the the real issue here isn't whether or not, you know, Nancy Pelosi, or, you know, Dwayne Wade can water his garden, right? That's not what concerns me. <laughs> they can, right. if they want, what I'm going to do for those guys is actually sell them trees because they desperately need carbon offset if they want to maintain their credibility as environmentally friendly, but what we what we discovered when we wrote about this, mate, was that um, if you actually want to take oil to S&P, 10% of the S&P, you need to like quadruple Exxon, which intuitively just feels way too much, you know, just to get the market cap share up. And, the, and there's a very simple reason for that, which is that the last time oil was at 10% of the S&P 500 heading to 2% of the S&P 500 was actually around 2015, 2016, as recently as that. The S&P, I believe, was at 2,000. <laughs> so the big thing that you realize is that the scale of Apple, the scale of Amazon, the scale of Tesla, you know, all these trillion, Google. Those things all made that move since then. And the S&P, do you have the numbers? You probably know them. But since then, obviously, what's the S&P today? Like 4.2 and four, one? Yep. So obviously, we've doubled it since that time, which is only five years ago. It's extraordinary to think. And if you look, and I can send you the note, if you look at the comp- composition of that move, it was like Apple. You know, it was, it wasn't, it, it, there was a whole lot of crap that happened in 2020 and all that sort of, you know, GameStop and stuff is completely irrelevant. What really moved the market was those mega fang, whatever you want to call them. I mean, you know, you know which ones they are. So, you know, you can get oil to 10% at the S&P 500 if Exxon goes up 50%. And the market goes down fifty percent, <laughs> which isn't an unreasonable assumption, actually. Funnily enough, although I think what's changed with that um, is is that the U.S. now seems so much better positioned globally, not least, in fact, perhaps most of all. Well, there's two massive things. One is obviously all those technology stocks, Apple, etc., global dominating. You know, we invented Google in the U.S., which is a big deal. But, but secondly, that the U.S. oil and gas companies had totally transformed the position of the U.S. energy wise. So basically, if you look to 2010, we were importing 10 million barrels a day of oil to the U.S. net. 10 million barrels a day out of our 20 million consumption was imported. And we exported zero natural gas. Ten years later today, we're net zero importers of oil in an energy crisis for the rest of the world. And we're the biggest exporter of natural gas in the world, which is the truly incredible, uh, truly incredible industrial performance to go from zero to biggest gas exporter in the world versus Russia versus Qatar versus whoever you want to name. There's been an absolutely stunning performance by the US oil and gas industry, and it hugely has strengthened the dollar. It's broken the dollar link with oil, and it's made the US a much more secure place. And you, the, these guys get zero credit for it. But the overall point of that was that. It means the U.S. stock market's going to be a lot stronger. So it's a long way of saying I don't know if we can get to ten percent. In all honesty, it's you know I always once once one of my targets looks really stupid, I just say it's long term. Right, <laughs> <laughs> give him give him a price, give him a time frame, but don't give them both. I
0: mean, would you would you say you know suffice to say the energy patch in general and and they're all still pretty undervalued given given the fundamentals given their cash flow generation and their propensity to buy back stock and pay dividends and just you know be those steady Eddie stocks. Yeah, it's the free, we just
1: look at the free we just look at the cash flow it's the free cash flow yield right i mean it's just like wow it's enormous and if you look at and and they're paying it back you know they're not going they used to go out and drill so again we only published on this yesterday the industry's never made as much free cash flow in its entire history I saw and we that chart. added up yeah, it right. Pretty it's hard. pretty powerful. Right. And, um, and you know, if you're going to pay that out as dividends, as I say, the more rapid, let's say they're actually going to pay a real 12 to 15% cash return to you. Again, that means you're fully paid out in eight years and you just have an option that the oil age didn't end after all. And, you know, as of a year and a half ago, I started saying this is not an energy transition. This is an energy regression. We're in full reverse. You know, we are short coal. And, you know, look at the coal stocks. It's like, you, you know, it's it's been fascinating to cover because you get the, you know, on the one hand, you get the humiliation of being completely wrong about stuff that you never thought would happen. Like, you know, Peabody Coal would be a hot stock. And I mean, like a properly hot stock, not just, you know, going from 20 cents to, to 40 cents. We have stuff here that's gone from, you know, a dollar to $40. Uh, and, it's, and it's now still at a, Arguably, fifty percent free cash flow if you look at a coal stock. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is cheap. the The thing that terrifies us with cyclical stocks, obviously, is massive global recession. That's that's why nobody necessarily wants to buy them right here. Yeah.
0: Do do you see? I mean, is an Exxon or a Chevron? Do they? I mean, they tend to trade. Most of them tend to trade kind of with each other as a group in general. But obviously, you have the higher beta names that rip on the upside and on the downside i mean do you see like an exxon chevron oxy those kinds of things all all kind of similarly valued or is there some something intrinsic in one of those that's more attractive or less attractive uh
1: yeah i mean uh, i think you've been reading the research you know what we said is as they improve their strategy they should all have the same strategies right you know what i mean it's like don't be the outlier because the market will hate you so there's there's really four groups, as as I'm sure you know, in oil and gas, which would be, it used to be the big oils, which used to be integrated, which is to say they did everything. <laughs> so Exxon and Chevron are the only two left that really have big oil, big gas, big refining and big chemicals. And they trade, as you say, fairly lockstep. There's more oil leverage, that is to say, higher level of oil production in Chevron and Exxon has more downstream, so has a bigger refining and chemicals position. Um, there's a major differentiation that makes me prefer Exxon for the first time in years since 2020, I've preferred Exxon, which is that they have this unbelievable, uh, mega play in Guyana, which is just a unique new Western hemisphere oil play that is now estimated to be 12 billion barrels of oil. Weirdly, my father was a diplomat. Not That's not weird. But what was weird is we lived in Guyana when I was about two years old and it's, it's a little swamp on a strip of land by a muddy muddy sea where the Essequibo hits hits the caribbean or whatever the sea is down there caribbean or atlantic but um it's now going to be one of the it has it, its gdp is growing about 150 percent a year to give you an idea <laughs> wow. and the company that has unique exposure to that with much more leverage is hess So Hess is the three-way partner with the Chinese and the Exxon in and Exxon to CNUC and and CNUC now you can't buy it. It's illegal for a US investor to buy the thing. CNUC being the Chinese National Offshore Oil Company. Right. HESS is the one that has a huge amount of leverage there. And then Hess has a bit of Bakken, which is the North Dakota oil play. And so that that's unique. Everything else is kind of Permian, you know, West Texas, similar strategies. So all the oily EMPs are very similar. More or less. And then um, and then you have obviously the gas space, which is complicated by pipelines. But the one we like there is Antero because it's not complicated by pipelines. It has egress from the Marcellus. So the US is incredibly blessed that we have the Permian, which is the biggest west, well, really arguably the biggest oil field in the world. Um, the US was an inland sea, if you look back. And essentially the sea drained through West Texas, and that's why you have the Permian deposits huge deposits of oil and then a similar effect was basically up in the northeast you had the marcellus which is called the saudi arabia of natural gas which is in pennsylvania mm-hmm. but you have a whole load of issues like you can't frack in new york and blah 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 and then on top of that people oppose pipelines which you know any environmentalist who opposes a pipeline is is a luddite that is to say they don't <laughs> want you to use any energy you know what i mean right. so their agenda is i don't want you to use any energy at all which effectively makes them Nazis because basically what they're gonna do is kill poor people. You right. know what I mean? It's like this is what this will be the effect of your wrong headed opposition to natural gas. I don't mind so much the opposition to oil in terms of its emissions, but gas is absolutely vital to this whole transition. So the the best play there is uh, is Antero, but then then you have um, the biggest is EQT. Uh, but that has pipeline issues, range, which has pipeline and management issues. So there are other ones, but they they all have reasons why they trade a bit of a discount compared to my favorite, which is Nantero. Then, of course, you have refining, which I've had a long history of covering, which I love those guys. They are definitely emissions unfriendly. <laughs> right. So they, they generate vast amounts of CO2. There's nothing they can do about it, but they've got great management. So uh, some of the nicest people you've ever met, by the way. And you've got some great companies there that are going to make huge amounts of money. So my favorites there would be something like Valero. Uh, and some of those are very levered. So you have things like PBF, which you know has a, a bit more debt, but also is very East Coast levered. <laughs> uh, and that's a problem insofar as East Coast oil markets are a problem because of opposition. Not so much to pipelines. We get a lot of supply from the Gulf Coast from pipelines up in the Northeast, but actually the Jones Act, which is... a protectionist requirement from the 1915 I think um, you're only allowed to move uh, between US ports on a US flagged US built US crude ship <laughs> does that make sense? It's got to be US built right? <laughs> and there aren't enough of those ships to move a lot of oil so you have to move everything by pipe so basically the northeast is short oil and the local refiner is PBF and then finally a group I don't like which people normally do who are oil analysts as the oil service companies, things like Slumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes. My argument has been that as long as, and it's a simple argument, as long as there's capital discipline, which is what we want from the big oils, those guys don't do well. Uh, now, all my clients typically want to buy those damn things because they remember the glory days when the oil spent more than their revenue. So they got a dollar of revenue, they spent dollar twenty of CapEx. That was obviously made Slumberger the go-go stock. Now they spend thirty cents of every dollar, believe it or not. They've gone oh, wow. 30. Yeah, they've gone from a dollar twenty for every dollar of revenue to thirty cents. That's the sort of stuff you have to know
0: what 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 what's your take on on oxy with 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 Berkshire? I mean what what about Oxy is so intriguing to them versus the other thing? I mean, I know that they also were buying Chevron in, in a pretty big way too. but what about oxy is is so intriguing to them? I haven't really you know followed it too much.
1: Um, I can't remember the original history of, yeah, yeah. So basically, what happened was that Oxy was a perfectly good oil company. It had been the worst oil company in the, in the fifties in terms of egregious um, mismanagement, you know, outrageous exploration. Armand Hammer's personal piggy bank. I noticed that Arnie Hammer. I didn't actually realize Arnie Hammer is Armand's grandson. But Armand was a was a naughty boy, and uh, in a lot of different ways, and um. Particularly managing the company was a total disaster. Eventually, it was taken over by a guy called Ray Arani, who was also naughty. Who I personally knew and had a lot of funny stories about. If you give more time, I'll tell you a couple of good ones. <laughs> he, did, one of my favorites was, uh, he, but just in passing, he said he was uh, we were having dinner in New York, and he said, "I'm going to Oman to the opera." And I was like, "I oh, really?" And he's, he's like, "Yeah." It was like, well, "It's nice having a private jet, isn't it?" And he's like, "Yes, yeah, actually." um sharon stone asked me for a, for, a, for a ride on the jet as i'm going to Cannes. she wanted me to drop her in Cannes, and i said oh yeah well, that's nice you're gonna have sharon stone on the jet he's like oh no no i asked my wife she said no <laughs> <laughs> um so basically and that's that's by the way uh, ray being very good but anyway this guy called steve chasen is undoubtedly the most fascinating executive i've ever covered who i know well he Was a geologist on the moon program You know, was a dog handler in Vietnam, was head of investment banking at Merrill Lynch, and then he became CFO of Oxy and is now chairman. Uh, As as head of banking at Merrill Lynch, he got the business to do the first IPO of Walmart, basically because he was a dog handler in Vietnam and Sam Walton loved dogs. And so, you know, Chazen's understanding of dogs got him the business to do the first IPO of Walmart. Pretty cool, right? So anyway, uh, I'm going to write the book about Chasen probably one day, but... Like, you know, some t- tomorrow as they say but um, the long short of it was that he turned Oxy around from worst in class to best in class over the course of 98 when they raised debt to pay their dividend to 2010 when it was just considered to be the best thing ever and had really been one of the best stock alongside Exxon during the financial crisis I mean the best stock in the market because they had a bulletproof uh, balance sheet he lost direction a bit actually because of California Uh, He got over over his skis on California and they promised too much growth. And eventually with falling out with Irani, he basically split the company into CRC, which a lot of hedge funds love today, which is the Californian oil play. And the reason they love it is because of the carbon capture business they've got. And uh, Oxy Rump, which moved to Houston and Oxy, the main company, was then handed by Chasen to a woman called Vicky Holub, who was known to be a very good explorer, excuse me, operator, um you know so he just wanted someone to just run the company you know just just grind out the Permian, and pound rocks as we say and it's just you know it's not a it's not it's sort of a factory just operational undertaking to, to pound these rocks you know you've just got to organize people to be in the right place in the right time with the right amount of sand and she was very good at that she's also a big alabama football fan and very competitive and she got into some sort of negotiation with this notorious guy called al walker who was the sort of Hermitan CEO of Anadarko vaguely agreed to make a deal with him but stand off for a year and then he went and made a deal with Chevron to sell Anadarko to Chevron which was a good deal that made sense industrially and Vicky lost her mind and decided to counter against Chevron which was at first mis- you know a number of huge mistakes number one Oxy should never have had anything to do with Anadarko number two In the oil industry, you never make hostile counters because they just always end badly. Um, It's capital intense business, but you also lose staff. It's just a number of reasons why you shouldn't counter hostile. And at that point, actually, my dear friend, Mr. Carl Icahn, decided to buy a ton of oxy because he didn't believe the board would be stupid enough to approve the deal for Anadarka. So he got long. And she announced the deal she stunned everyone and actually said i'm doing it and chevron had a really interesting um game theory play which was do you bid higher against a lunatic so they walked they made the right game decision which is you know they could they could kill oxy even worse than it was already killed in fact if chevron had countered deliberately to screw up oxy knowing that she would go even higher oxy wouldn't be here today and in fact arguably chevron would have been able to buy it certainly exxon would have probably well exxon was just, just itself screwed during covid but anyway if ifs and ands so the long story short was that vicky uh you know became absolutely determined to buy this thing the shareholders analysts like me hated the deal we were like this is the worst thing i've ever seen in my life carl Icahn was losing his mind or well, i think he was just about the biggest shareholder at the time and um in order to get the deal done Vicky actually left one of the biggest and most respected mutual funds in the world where they were telling her what an idiot she was and took the private, without offering them the same deal, flew to Omaha and said to Warren, what will you do for me? And Warren, you know, he feeds off that stuff. He's Absolutely. Like, yeah, sure. You do, do me 10 billion of preferred at 8% and the, the, I'll give you the cash. You, the guy can literally put a blow his top drawer and just get you 10 billion, right? And so she got the deal done and hence Warren ended up long oxy got it eight percent preferred so then tell me if i'm going on too long how long do we have so then um, that's how that's how warren ended up in oxy and then i think what happened is that all of that hit covid and you know to make it worse oxy management had decided the way to do anadarko was to put in a great big wall of debt in 23 22 And then sell everything in 2020 that they didn't want to get rid of the debt. But of course, 2020 was COVID, so they couldn't sell anything. So they ended up in all sorts of trouble. And it was, you know, on its knees. ICANN was so upset that he had them issue a whole lot of warrants to pay him for sticking around during this disaster. He got two seats on the board Just sell everything he can, pay down as much debt as you can. And so Uncle Warren ended up with a ton of warrants as well as Carl. And so... Somewhere along the line, the oil price went up a lot. And, you know, from about six, eight months ago, Uncle Warren started buying Oxy stock on a pretty steady basis. And I think, you know, if you think about it strategically, given the warrants he's got, given the preferreds he's got, given if it pays more than $4 dividend per share a year, she can take his warrants out. And so according to his own words, he listened to the Q1 call of Oxy, which was Vicky speaking, decided that she was going to not spend any money she was just going to ride the oil price and make as much free cash flow as possible and he's as he said himself he liked he thought she's doing everything right and he started buying the stock with both hands at which point i got back involved again because everyone started asking me is he going to buy the whole thing now i know a story from years ago which you know is arguably material on public information but essentially without being specific Buffett had previously offered to buy a whole oil company. So people who say they never buy a whole oil company don't remember that he owned Phillips, Petroleum, P66, et cetera. And I think what he likes is just high free cash flow companies, right? Absolutely. A big American brand, high free cash flow. What's not to like? The other thing I was saying about the reason why he would want to buy it is he's got a massive excess of cash and Oxy's got a massive excess of debt. So he had a huge balance sheet arbitrage where he can just go to 30%. You know lower their cost of capital because if uncle warren's a shareholder you get a lower cost of capital that raises your multiple increases your ability to manage your finances etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's pretty much where we are today
0: that's fast i mean you really should write a book by the way the the stuff that you <laughs> you know the stuff that you know from all of these deals and all these perf you know uh, executives and all the the behind closed doors wheeling and dealing not that you could you know, out a lot of that stuff, but what 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 good information? Uh, we only have a couple of more minutes. I'd I'd love to ask your opinion on inflation in general. Right, everybody is talking about will inflation be lingering and higher than normal? And if so, gosh, how do I protect the portfolio? Co- the commodities come to mind. We talked about it before the, you know, before we started recording. You know, people are underweight energy stocks. People are underweight commodities in general. I mean, a are you a believer in kind of inflation staying maybe higher than normal? And if so, is is uh, it, it, are energy stocks and, and or commodities, you know, good places for people to to consider? And they can they can do their own work and, and research. But generally speaking, those assets, those real assets, tend to do better in, in those periods of time.
1: Yeah, that, that one is, that <laughs> that one is a real, real tough That's a one. tough one. Um, I mean, from the lows, basically, when they were trying to, re and all well, this has happened so fast, but when they were trying to re-stimulate the economy and openly saying they wanted inflation, it was very easy for me at that point to say, look, if the Fed wants inflation, it's going to get inflation. And if you get inflation, you're going to get oil inflation. And if you get oil inflation, you should buy all these oils. So that was really that was an easy trade, and you would have seen me on CNBC, basically saying, you know, buy Exxon, sell Apple, or whatever the you know whole list of things were. But the the returns on all those trades, you know, I'm never going to make another pair trade on CNBC. <laughs> can I? I mean, I, I think the net returns are like 500 or something, you could say. So um, you know, against the market down 20, sort of thing. But um. What what then happened was we, we got the inflation and we got the hundred and ten whatever oil price and we got the rip in the oils. Yeah. I mean they, they, people people find me. There's a guy that gives me courtside tickets to the next dude because he's like, you know, full. You just take him. <laughs> um, this guy had told me he was long Devon uh, calls and he made two million bucks just on Devon calls somewhere, <laughs> you know. What I, mean? I can't tell you how happy I have for you. So um what then happened was interesting because as we came into June of this year, we were looking at very, very strong Q2 earnings. And, you know, you're in June, so you're like, there's a month to go. Uh, and um, you got the inflation print came in at 8.1%, June 6th, I think it was, June 8th maybe. And the group just went in a straight line down 30%. <laughs> And as we joke, you know, it's like, I was like down 10% healthy, you know, down 20% extra healthy correction, down 30% Sal! <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was a tough one. And and I'm, the reason I'm telling you all this nonsense and not really answering is I I don't think I've worked it out yet, mate. I don't yeah. think I know. Um, obviously, we're going into Jackson Hole. You, you, more than anything, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have to try and work this out. You know, obviously, we're going to Jackson Hole, Um, obviously the biggest single part, one one of the big problems for the group right now and why we don't really excessively love them is the government has very quickly worked out that if they release the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, they can attack the oil price. And if they get the oil price down, they can attack inflation. But everything that we look at is like, you know what, this oil price isn't staying down here. And by the way, you're pumping an extra million barrels a day out of our emergency reserves, million barrels a day, into a 20 million barrel a day market. And we're at 100. (laughs) <laughs> i mean i don't know what happens when you stop man what happens when you start rebuilding it if you decide you need to they might not need to in reality because of what i told you about u.s producing more oil right but, you know so i think what i began to believe is that you'll see reinflation in oil and the whole trade will come back in i think that's the quick answer in yeah. fact, i think that's more or less what we decided and and what you saw over that June 8th through whatever period was Apple put on $600 billion of market cap, right? Amazon did $400 billion. Um, you know, Amazon alone put on more market cap. Well, Apple put on more market cap than the whole oil sector. But of course, if you get back to rising gasoline prices again, and don't forget your structurally short US refining capacity as well, there's a number of reasons why it can still go back up. Then the whole inflation trade comes back on because you're like, wow, you know, the whole chain, which, you know, arguably has been built over the last 20 years for cheap energy. So all of this stuff is going to find it a little bit difficult. For example, people point out, you know, I had soil delivered by Amazon to Brooklyn the other day. Soil, you know, like garden soil. I'm just crying with laughter. I'm like, you know, this is just such a luxury service. I mean, who wants wants to be in the soil delivery service? I mean, there's no way Amazon's anything but losing a ton of money on that and the delivery guy hates me. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but they deliver soil over, pretty much. I think it was overnight for nothing. It, you know, it makes no sense. You know, but they're going to make up that loss in volume. Yeah, I don't.
0: I mean, I own Amazon too, but I, I wonder. My every time my wife orders, like, you know, toilet paper, what you know, and and gu- and chewing gum. I'm like, sweetie, you just, Amazon just lost money on that trade. Can you just consolidate all your orders so they can make a little I money? Mean, you know, mine, is,
1: mine, is, mine is horrendous because what she does is she she actually orders cheap stuff that's, you know, kind of design and knockoff free type stuff. But then she sends 80% of it back. She, you know, she right. roots out using Amazon's free delivery. She roots out those pieces that are actually genuinely worth, you know, are, are good for the price. You know, half of those things, if you ever use, cheap clothes you know you just take one look at it and you're like okay give it back but she's become such a machine at sending stuff back but of course all of this is monstrously uh, environmentally unfriendly and by the way the way amazon account their emissions is a, a total joke they don't count any third party sales in their emissions oh wow like the, yeah you know how much you you as much as anyone know how much they sell third party well so so forget
0: about the inflation thing because that obviously is a moving target and there's so many different inputs for inflation I mean, well, I think the
1: conventional wisdom is in inflation, you own oil, right? I mean, right,
0: right. I mean, from from a take inflation aside, I mean, just given the supply demand imbalance, or at least the it's much more imbalanced than it's ever been versus it, it used to be. I mean, what kind of what's what's a good range for it? You know, as long as oil stays in a certain range, these companies are just printing money. And That's and correct. they're just stable, predictable, you know, cash flow
1: growers. Yeah, that- they they do they do have credible break even numbers that they give you now, and those break even numbers are literally, um, you know, around forty. Wow. Yeah. You know, in order to cover their dividend, now that would be stay flat production and cover my dividend. So what you know, what you call maintenance capex, um, and and those numbers. In some cases, like the top quality, something like EOG, you know, they, they'd probably claim to be close to 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people, I, I mean, again, and, you know, it is actually an arbitrage opportunity because the, the market, as you've said, just doesn't want to own these things. You know, they're just like, you know, whether it's for environmental. Because, you know, the point I've got is I'm not I'm not like some evil, you know, if I were to be negative about these stocks, believe me, I would be. You know what I mean? And if I was worried about the environment and thought they made a difference, I would be very opposed to them. Don't get me wrong, you know. It, from a stock
0: buyback, I mean, do, do, is most of the what they do between buybacks and dividends, dividends, or do they are are they pretty aggressive on both you know having good dividends and buying stock back?
1: no, they they, they sort of stumbled upon a new framework which almost all of them now have, which is essentially they commit to give a certain amount of their free cash flow returned to shareholders. So let's say, uh, you know, it'll be fifty to seventy percent of all free cash flow will be re- directly returned to shareholders, and then they'll they'll typically they're all terrified of doing pro cyclical buybacks. You know, they don't want to buy back at the top and then have to issue debt at the bottom, which many of them have done. <laughs> yeah, uh, over the 20, 30 years I've covered them. So what they then do is actually pay you a combination of dividend regular, which they know they won't have to cut because they don't want to cut the regular, and then they pay you cash special. And then on top of the cash special, they'll buy back stock. And that's, guys, a fairly, that's a fairly standard. That is a standard. Uh, right.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, I, 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 it's amazing how now, bad. Some of them,
1: like Exxon and Chevron don't pay specials. Right. And, and you know, Oxy and Chazen is also CEO of Magnolia. Those guys do everything by buyback, typically.
0: It's, it's amazing. I don't know how it is, how they are in your sector, but it's amazing how the average company is so bad at stock buybacks like they're just terrible timers for, for buying stock back. You know, some, some companies are, are pretty good, but my experience is when you're listening to calls and then you do the math, you're like, you are a dreadful timer of your own stock. <laughs> if if you knew arguably you have all the information in your business, why don't you cool your jets on the buyback? I'll use PayPal as a good example. I, I, I mean, they bought back stocks so high <coughs> And their business was clearly struggle, you know, for the last two or three quarters. And I don't know how energy companies are at at timing their style. You know, sometimes they, they just put it on a schedule and it gets bought back regularly and there's no timing at all. But some people are a lot more active on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think most we, we believe me, we've thought about this every which way. I mean, one of the great lines was from T. Boone Pickens, the legendary old man who was you give me the cash and I'll do the buyback. So that's one parameter. The problem with the buyback is, as Chazen will tell you, my favorite executive, you just you're paying a guy to walk away. Do you know what I mean? So the money goes out of the enterprise. So they actually all kind of want to buy back stock. Uh, but then you do have this pro cyclical issue. So the, the way they've solved that is by this this multiplex this um three pronged approach. You know, I'll give you I'll pay you a decent regular that rises every year, and we won't cut it. It's way be way below. It's at our break even rate. You know. Mm -hmm. i'll pay you these juicy specials but then additionally i'll do buybacks and i tend to think that like a chevron is talking about a rateable buyback which is to say once we put it in it's not going down either like the dividend but it's definitely a conundrum once they've all paid down their debt because we're agreed that they don't want any debt you know and so that becomes a big cost of capital theory where in practice a company like paypal maybe should have a lot of debt um but you know, again, these stocks are so fundamentally overvalued that it's very difficult. They probably should run cash on their balance sheet and wait for a downturn. You know, but it's 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 definitely one that has me staggering around the room and my head in my hands because it's just so hard. Because effectively, for example, earlier this year, a company called Diamondback, which I like a lot, said, Look, we're not going to do this pro-cyclical thing. We're not going to buy back stock when we get to what we think is a the high price for our stock. And they stopped buying back stock and it started badly underperforming because people are like, Well, if you're not buying it, I'm not buying it. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. a really bad message to the market. So it's it's definitely a major conundrum. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what we do have, what we have pounded into them is don't make a dumb acquisition and do not spend anything more than to grow really a tiny bit. You know, no more growth than 5% at the very most. And they've all got that. So the good news is the problem at the moment is how do I return the cash without being pro cyclical in the buyback? I mean, it's it's a luxurious problem.
0: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, last question, if you had to guess over the next, let's just call it three years, you think uh, the energy patch b- is better than the S&P and, and or the, the NASDAQ? And if so, is it is it a big margin or is it just, you know, marginally a little bit better? or Maybe, you know, who knows if we get a global recession? I guess it depends on your view of a global recession. If yes, then maybe they underperform. If no, then maybe they outperform. But I'll, I'll let you answer that
1: because you're smarter than I am. Well, I don't know about that, but I, what I would say is, no, we're we're pretty aggressively overweight here. We, you know, I I put out so much research. I mean, I'm publishing four or five times a week. That you know, people can get confused because I'm bearish, I'm bullish. You know, I'm la 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 la. But but the over the overarching message is that the energy is underrepresented in the market. You know what I mean? We're bullish, kind of all of them. Uh, that's that's our like three to five year view in fact my schedule originally i wrote the note about how these companies could get better in 2017 i called it the renaissance of us emp and i said these things are typically on a seven year cycle which can go to 14 years but won't go longer than that and you know it could be two years but ultimately it should balance out at seven so these things should run th- through 2017 plus seven right which would be tw- 2024 Um. The way things are panning out, we'll see. I mean, it's just so hard to second guess the economy now, right? But one bullish theory for oil, which is probably someone with rose-tinted spectacles, if you could say that about the situation in Europe, is that essentially uh, energy is going to put Europe into the depression. So it'll probably be one of the few winners, right? Because, but it's interesting that recently you've seen incredible European gas prices. I mean, $800 a barrel of oil equivalent, where I just told you the all-time high on oil has been 150 um, Eight hundred dollars a barrel of oil is the price today in Europe. By the way, that's before winter. Um, the the oil oil has been acting um, in inverse correlation to European gas, which suggests that the markets discounting the recession that that very high gas price causes. You know,
0: right? But if you look
1: at the solution, there's one thing that could be a shock for oil, which might be peace in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> But nobody, one of the things that reason I think that's because nobody has that on their bingo card right now. You know what I mean? Nobody thinks Putin is going to do anything. But I was looking at his military position and he's got the land bridge, you know what I mean? And he's having a vote in those areas. So, and he's screwing Europe right now for natural gas, which would suggest he's forcing them to yell at Ukraine. Can you please accept whatever this guy says? And I told you about the relationship of Germany and Russia. Right. So it could be that we have a huge... <clears throat> peace dividend coming, which will not make the oils outperform in the short term. Do you know what I mean? It'll be yeah. your apple. No, the knee ammo. jerk
0: will be to sell, but.
1: Totally. But, you know, I think if you look at what's happened structurally with energy and what we believe, we always have to focus just like, we can't do the cyclical stuff, it's too hard. The structural stuff is, you're in a wonderful position in US oil and gas, you know, as right. I mentioned. And <clears throat> that means with these companies with better managements, better assets, less of them, more consolidated, they're going to be great. They're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, timing it is going to be very tricky.
0: I mean, it just it, ju- it just seems like Putin. I mean, we we know that he has plenty of buyers, uh, you know, in his axis of evil kind of, <laughs> you know, world for his oil. But it's it seems like his actions have been so aggressive that he's turning the world against him and his products but but maybe he just doesn't care or maybe he realizes that they need it and they have no choice and they have to come bend the knee I don't know it just seems like you're you're putting so much pressure on people that they finally like you said earlier they just say you know what I'll take some pain just to never deal with you again because I don't trust (laughs) you
1: well I mean that's the beauty of being a I've considered it a massive privilege to be to be a, a publishing analyst, you know, because you write down. it's like, Okay, look, I've got as much information as you. I got Word, you know, I got Word and PowerPoint, and we're going to say this is what will happen next. You write it on a piece of paper, and work it all out. At least you, at least you know why you're wrong. <laughs> right. But you know, this is what I thought would happen. This is what happened, you know. And so with Putin, it was definitely inexplicable that he did ultimately what he did. Other than, you know, people use the kind of senility defense, right? I saw him in the context of Peter the Great, which I think was a good call. Peter the Great being, you know, 1550, what was it, 1750? 1750, I think, but he was the Tsar that made Russia great in terms of pushing it into the Black Sea Crimea and all the way into Lithuania and everywhere else, the Baltics. And it was like, well, this guy's dying, and he's furious that the Soviet Union broke up. You know, he wants he he thinks he's the last hope of the future of Russia and he's going to do something massive. And that's kind of what he did. But I thought that he would play the game up to the edge and then not. You know what I mean? I never thought he would actually invade. And then you got this crazy situation where his, you know, the Russian military, the so, you know, the, the, the touted Russian military couldn't make it 50 miles from Belarus to Kiev, it was like, what is going on? i mean, you remember they couldn't make it fifty miles? I tell you what, that, the, the U.S. Army would have made that one. They would have made it. They would have made it in probably ten minutes. Well, so- it's going
0: to be interesting. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll. There, there's lots of lots of data points. Lots of of countries trying to to control things, and so I I, I don't know. I ha- I have. I mean, I'm two x overweight the S and P with my, with my Chevron and Exxon. I mean, I don't have access to a lot of the, the energy stocks um, in December, every December we kind of update our investment universe. So I might add some, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about adding a Valero or a PSX or something just to give the refining stuff. So, you know, so I feel good just about having these dividend plays in there and, you know, I'm going to ride through the volatility because it just seems like the, with geopolitics and and supply demand and, good capital controls that these companies seem to be pretty pretty good businesses from an investor perspective yeah
1: i mean i'd like you to i mean i think a safer bet which has had a huge run but you know you you really want to belong the natural gas theme chevron and exxon you own the same thing very close to it right um so i'd like you to own a permian play you know which would be a fang or even an oxy or whatever these big guys in the permian are going to be the future of global oil uh, I'd like you to own natural gas because we, we're the biggest natural gas exporter in the world, and I, you know, I think U.S. infrastructure is undervalued, so I would own a big MLP, something like an energy transfer for gas or Enterprise. Is, a, is the problem is the management are now so rich that they don't they don't run it for you know the... <laughs> it's like when I used to talk to Rich Kinder and the guy was making a dollar in salary a year, you know, and he never mentioned that his dividends was six hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> but to his credit, I bumped into him in the, in the economy class lounge in Houston Airport, carrying his bags. You know, he's making six hundred million dollars a year. I phoned the CFO and I'm like, "What the hell's Rich doing at the back of Houston Airport?s You know, it's a dump. He's like, "Yeah, always flies economy on business."
0: God bless him. He's. I mean, listen. I mean, oh, so so that brings up a question though. Um, research. Is is I know you do a lot of blogging. You're on CNBC and a lot of other media. I mean, is there is there some blogs that people get access to, or is you know is it all under a paywall? How how can people get more access to to your to your wisdom in this space?
1: Well, basically, uh, you know, don't tell anyone, but you can this, the, you can sign up free for the website. And you okay. know, I've always said on Wall Street, if you're successful, you get paid in arrears. You know, what I mean, you you, you deliver something first, and then people pay second. Absolutely. If you're reading it a lot, we come and get you. We don't really want
0: Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.